From the Hollywood Gallery of the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories at the Peterson. Welcome into another episode of Car Stories. Thank you, everybody uh, who has listened. My name is AJ. And I'm Chris. And today we have with us a Formula, former Formula One driver, Vern Chupin. Was I close? Yeah, pretty close. That's, okay. that, 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 that'll do me. Thank I you. Was, I was been, that's been my biggest fear this entire time is pronouncing your last name correctly. Uh, Vern, thank you so much for coming in. You have a great history of racing and car, uh, you know, being a car collector and just uh, an all-around car guy. Uh, so we thought we'd go all the way back, start at your very beginning, and uh, go from there. Yeah, I wanted to find out, uh, you know, what was your earliest automotive memory? Well, it was my um, uh, my dad and my grandfather used to take me fishing, and um, we used to drive out on a very, uh, quite a rough road, uh, um, an unsealed road, and uh, my dad had a Fargo ute, and uh, he would sit me, let me sit on his lap and steer the car, and um, or steer the steer the ute, and um, my granddad sitting there, and my father would go fast enough that he would, you know, actually, you know, get into a slide through some of the turns, and I would put some opposite lock on, and uh, I can remember my dad saying, you know, to my grand granddad, you know, hey, have a look at this. <laughs> and and so, about how old were you at this time? I was probably only. Four or five years old. <laughs> so this was early day, you know, this rally is... driving or drifting down in Australia. Utes are really popular down by you, and I always think they're the neatest cars. And unfortunately, we don't have them up here anymore. No, it's a shame. I mean, we all, as kids growing up, um, it was cool to have a Ute, you know. And um, uh, I, I had. Uh, probably more utes in my early days than I had cars because they were just uh, considered, as I say, very cool to have. And uh, we'd go if we would go surf and we'd uh, sleep in the back and this kind of thing and yeah. go kart race and of course you yeah. know put put the go karts in and yeah perfect were, combination of style and utility. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they're essentially so. an El Camino or a yeah. Ranchero is a is a yep. Ute. And I love the story they started down in Australia where a woman like in the early 40s wrote 1934 a, wrote a letter Ford, to yeah. ford saying i'd like a car that we can put the pigs in and we can drive to church so that you know you somehow combine the two and you, you should got, probably drop the pigs off before you get into church they <laughs> yeah, well they're very way. religious pigs they're <laughs> devout pigs yeah well um, i mean there were always stories about um the, and the true stories too where um uh, one farmer had a Rolls Royce, and uh, he'd used it around the farm for a while, and then eventually he decided to cut the back of the roof off, and he oh built a Rolls Royce Ute. <laughs> wow, I'd love to see that. You, you've got a style and cargo. So, how is growing up in Australia as into cars? How does that differ from America? And kind of what got you into, you know, into really into a passion for cars? Well, I think it was. Um, Quite similar in many ways, although we didn't have the hot rods and things like that. But um, uh, growing up with cars, with my my dad was a car dealer, and uh, he sold Chryslers, and uh, he sold um, the British cars, uh, the Standard Motor Company. They made a car called the Vanguard, and um, so Dad uh, was a dealer, and um, I sort of grew up with the cars, and then learning learned to drive at a very young age because uh, we had uh, he had a garage business. And we were, this was in the southern part of Australia, um, almost on the fringe of the outback. But it was a town where um, we were on the on the coast, and we had it was very close to uh, some of the big iron ore deposits. And um, so we had a shipbuilding industry, um, population of about ten thousand people, and um, you know, you know, guys like me would. I was just craving to get my license at sixteen, and. I couldn't wait. As a matter of fact, I went and sat for it a week before, and they didn't look at the date of my birthday. So my license actually turned up before I turned sixteen. <laughs> but I'd been driving. Uh, car. I had my own car for. Um, I started work for my dad at fourteen as a as a panel beater spray painter, and um, I, I bought of or dad it was one of dad's uh, old cars that he used to lease cars to the mining company, and uh, it was an old uh, Hillman. Uh -huh. Known as a Hillman Minx. Oh, okay, yeah. A 1950 car, and uh, 
so I spent my first year of, as a apprentice and learning my trade uh, and in my spare time doing up this Hillman and then uh, so that was finished a year before I was um, had the license but my mates who had licenses would drive me out of town and then of course I would drive the car through the bush and <laughs> you know just so uh, it was uh, I'm sure not too different from growing up in uh, parts of uh, the United States. Yeah, you find the the way to sneak out and and uh, go where nobody can see you, so you can <laughs> that's right. drive that car. Yeah, it was know? like when I went to get my first motorcycle license. Um, uh, I went into the police station, and and that time you still had to do a um, do a a test, you know, with a policeman behind you. And uh, um, instead of that happening, when I tried to book him for the test, the guy, the the constable, just signed it, and he said, "There you go." and uh, the other, uh, his colleague said, uh, well, what what kind of a test was that? And he said, well, he can ride a motorcycle. He said, I've seen him. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so, it was a simpler time. It, yeah. it was a, a better time for someone growing yeah, up was, who was it, into cars. It was pretty sensible. <laughs> now it's probably, probably a little more strict than that. So how did you, were you, when did you go from, because a Hillman Minx is not known as the quickest car in the world. <laughs> now, uh, no, were you, were you doing go-karting before? No, I was uh, um, your uh, drive car. Or? Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't go kart until I was sort of, um, oh, I guess seventeen or eighteen. Um, but what I'd done was start to build a racing car, and um, my father. I started gathering some bits together. I was going to b- build a single seated uh, car known as a Formula Junior, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got a Volkswagen Transaxle and things like this bits that they used to use on those cars. And my father was uh, horrified, and he just said, "There's no way you're going to go motor racing, you know." And uh, um, eventually, he thought maybe um, go karting would satisfy me. And uh, he came to me one day and said, "Look," he said, "if you give up this motor racing idea, um, I'll help you buy a go kart." And um, probably, probably the worst thing he did because uh, I I had quite a good go kart career. I won the state titles several times, and. It only um, fueled the fire. Yeah, right? it really. Yeah, it, it, I feel it like, really did. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that's like a father or someone saying, "Look, if you get off drugs, I'll buy you a beer." Yeah, you know, if you give up the hard stuff, yeah. I'll, I'll get you a carton of cigarettes and a case of beer. Um, who were you looking up to as like a race car driver? I mean, what was sort of the era oh, of what well, you were watching, and you know, yeah, got sure. you into it? Well, I, I used to read all the magazines about uh, the the stock car racing in the United States, and you know, Smokey Eunuch and. Uh, just all the uh, that, that was a, uh, the American racing was very fascinating to me, but also, um, of course, you know the days of Jimmy Clark and uh, Jack Brabham and Sterling Moss, and you know as a schoolboy, um, I'd follow their exploits, and uh, mm-hmm. if they were ever on, you know, movies and things like this. So I was uh, really, um, I guess, like a lot of other young lads, you know, we uh, we had car racing in Australia. Um, sure. But the first race I saw was in 1956. It was the Australian Grand Prix. And um, there was a 250F Maserati uh, owned by a driver by the name of um, Reg Hunt. And everybody figured he bought this new 250 Maserin. And uh, everyone figured, well, he's going to win the Grand Prix. But that year, Jack Brabham also arrived with, um, uh, it was known as the Bobtail Cooper. And it was a rear engine Cooper Climax uh, sports car, essentially. And um, anyway, he beat Hunt in the wow. uh, in the Mazza, and wow. uh, that that's kind of stuck in my memory. And and I eventually, uh, when I became a professional driver, I became very good friends with Jack, and uh, 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 continued right up until the time of his death a few months ago. Wow, that's that's uh, pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. So um, your path that you took through racing, of course, you you started in the carts. What and you, and your dad didn't want you to go any farther than karting. Mm. How did you take that next step? Was he with you by the time you by the no. time you uh, took that next step? Was he okay with it, no, or no, no, you just no. went on your own? <laughs> no, I just had to give that idea up altogether, and uh, um, I went off on a working holiday around the world in 1965 with another mate, and I, I'd planned to go for two years, but um, I'd also started going out with um, Jennifer, my wife, and. I, th- I decided that, uh, gee, you know, if I'm away for two years, she won't be there when I come back. So I only sure. went for four months. And um, uh, we got married in 1967. And then I announced to her that I'd still like to have a go at, you know, racing cars. Mm-hmm. And 
um, let's go to Europe and have a couple of years and uh, if I don't make it within two years, uh, I will, I'll do what you want to do, you know. And, yeah. Uh, but we'll have an adventure during that time. And, sure. Uh, so basically, um, I bought an old uh, Ford van known as a Ford Thames and uh, fitted it out for camping and towing the trailer, a race car trailer. And we put that on board a ship in Adelaide and we also, Jennifer and I were booked on the ship. And so we sailed to Adelaide with the with the van and uh, unloaded in Southampton. And uh, the first thing was to then find a cheap Formula Ford. I had only had five thousand dollars saved up, which is about two thousand pounds. So I found this um, uh, not particularly competitive Formula Ford, which I paid half the money for, was nine hundred and fifty pounds. Mm-hmm. And um, off we went racing on weekends. We'd race every weekend, sometimes two times, Saturday and Sunday. And uh, that was uh, the very end of 1969. I had my first uh, sort of Formula Ford races. And w- when you got the Formula Ford, um, when did you start winning and you know becoming competitive and start to stand out uh, as a race car driver? Well, I, 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 for a start, the Formula Ford was very disappointing after a go-kart. The good twin-engine carts we had back in those days at 200cc with, with McCulloch engines. Quick, um, quick little cart. Yeah, and slick tires and all the rest of it. So... Um, the Formula Ford was a real disappointment. I thought that was, uh, you know, underpowered and terrible tyres. We had treaded tyres on them. Yeah. And they were obviously deliberately done to for cheap racing, you know, to, to begin racing, and uh, all the cars were essentially the same. So every weekend in Britain, um, there were a number of Formula Ford races around the country, and it was quite hard to get an entry. Um so a lot of the drivers, like myself, would put in entries for maybe three or four different race meetings and see if we got uh, selected. And uh, on the third weekend, uh, I went down to do a race at um, a little circuit in Kent called Lydon Hill, and um, I was down as a reserve. And invariably they said, look, if you come down, chance that one or two others won't turn up and you'll get a race. So on race day, um, the organisers came and said, we've got a full grid, um, if you don't mind starting from the back, we'll let you race. Anyway, I finished third and I got the fastest lap. So um, that <laughs> That's actually, pretty good accomplishment. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, and that was only my fourth weekend of racing and that actually got me a, uh, I won't say a works drive, but um, one of the uh, constructors, a guy by the name of Tony Macon, who was building a Formula Ford, mainly for the American market, and uh, he came along after that race. He said, um, um how would you like to have one of my, drive one of my cars? He said, "I'll loan you the car, and uh, you've got to run it." But so that was kind of my first works drive. So you got something fresh, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, you know, and then I had, you know, I sold my car and had the money to help, you know, help run that car. Sure, sure. And where, where, how, uh, how did your career progress from that point? Yeah. When, yeah. It, when did you realize like? I've sort of, you know, I'm a pro driver. Now I need to go fast. Yeah. Now I, mean, I need to yeah. get a real fast well, car. Well, you know, um, I was um, I was lucky enough to um, be selected to go with um, a Formula Ford uh, group of 20 cars, or 20 cars and drivers. They um, put together an eight-race series in Brazil, and it was called the Formula Ford Temperata Series, and it was the first um, big... Uh, motor race for uh, or motor races for cars coming from uh, overseas since the Second World War. <laughs> so this became quite a big deal. It was in January, um, January and February 1970, um, and there were people like uh, Emerson Fittipaldi and um, Tom Walkinshaw. There were guys that went on to obviously have famous careers in that race, mm-hmm. and so I kind of felt we had eight races all over Brazil in, you know, Rio and San Paulo and Curitiba and Fortaleza. And um, I kind of thought, you know, I've sort of cracked it, you know, to be given a car and invited to do something like that, which is very, very exciting. And uh, um, when I came back to Europe, um, I was then offered a better car by a company um, run or owned by a British Airways captain by the name of Hugh Dibley, and Hugh used to race uh, T70 Lolas and as a sideline to his uh, flying uh, T70 and the Howlman turbine car. He was quite well known mm-hmm. guy at the time. Drove with people like uh, Paul Hawkins, and uh, so there was a uh, he had a company that was building Formula Fords uh, um, named Palliser, and BRM was supplying the engines for the cars. So it was 
uh, essentially a Ford 1600 engine with um, different people doing the you know the preparation and BRM were one company that was doing those and I had uh, quite a few race wins with that and um, so that was my really my first full season was 1970 and I had in mind that I needed to move on each year and not sort of do another year of the same formula because I'd I was 26 when I started racing. Yeah. If, yeah right? if you go down sort of your list of all, you've done a little bit of everything. I mean, you've, you definitely haven't stayed one place too long. Just sort of, you know, uh, uh, you run down your list of the, the big races and the cars you've been in. Oh, well, I, I guess, um, uh, the big break for me was, uh, in my second year I was doing former Atlantic and, they built an Atlantic car, a Palace had built it for, uh, one car, and uh, out of BRM twin cam engine, and I went straight into the lead of the series. It was, And I won, I actually won the series, but during that season, the boss of uh, BRM, uh, Lou Stanley, uh, called me into his office for a meeting, him and Mrs. Stanley, and uh, they said, you know, if you, if you win the championship, we'll give you a Formula 1 test drive. And essentially... Um, Winning that 1971 championship in the Palace of BRM put me into a Formula One car, and I had two Formula One races in 1972. So, um, quite a step up. Yeah, and it was uh, they were non-championship races, but with the exception of Ferrari, all the teams were there. They were both in Britain. A very famous race called the Gold Cup at Alton Park, and I finished fifth in my first F1 race. And then two months later at Brands Hatch. Um, another non-championship race but um i came home fourth in that and they signed me for the 1973 formula one season so that was kind of uh i figured i'd reach my goal of getting to formula one in a good car before i was 30 i was you yeah. know, 28 sort of thing sure. a couple of years after i started racing so um uh that was a pretty exciting um time and uh it was uh i i I didn't, unfortunately, BRM, Lewis Stanley was a bit of a loose cannon. Um, when I signed, it was uh, Clay Regazzoni and myself, a two-car team. Then he signed Jean-Pierre Beltoise, so they uh, were going to run three cars. And then finally, um, Nicky Lauda came on the scene with some money, and essentially he bought my drive, and I was looked down then as a reserve driver. So I did did one race in 1973, and it was when after Regasoni had burnt his uh, hands at the had a crash at the uh, South African Grand Prix, and um, I was put in the car and I qualified at Brands Hatch on the front row with Lauda and Beltois. So we were at that, those days they started three cars on the front row yeah. like they do at Indy, you know. Yep. So um, um, that was you know kind of one of those things where my Formula One career had taken off very well. Um, I kind of got to where I wanted to go, but circumstances were that uh, I had to sit that season out. I was still under contract, but um, my services were only required if another driver had hurt himself, or mm-hmm. uh, and I used to do tyre testing, so I was a reserve driver, but I still got to do miles, uh, you know, with tyres. So did that open you up for other opportunities and other series? <clears throat> well, um, yeah, I mean, I was doing... Um, I was... Uh, I essentially... I started getting invited to do races like, for example, um, the golf, JW Golf uh, Racing Team, which was uh, the official Porsche 917 team mm-hmm. and then GD40s and so on. Um, the race I did at Brands Hatch with uh, um, Lauder and Beltoise, during that race, John Watson, who was driving for uh, also, he was driving for Brabham, he crashed and broke his leg, so... Um, after that race, I was contacted by Golf, John Horsman, um, mm-hmm. and John Wire to see if I would um, like to drive in this. You know, it was in the Sports Car World Championship and take over John Watson or Watty, as we called him, uh, take over his ride until he was back on deck. And uh, so I kind of I, I found myself getting invited to drive different types of cars in different events, and then I had. I'd get a call from Japan about coming out there and doing a race at Fuji or something. And uh, um, it just sort of, um, you know, I had to do things and keep busy. But it was a very exciting time to be able to um, be traveling 
you know, to other countries and driving these different types of cars. What uh, what was your, I guess, favorite at the time? Because it, you're sort of this mid-70s. I, I see it's the height of, it's when it was the fastest and the most unsafe combined. <laughs> uh, and you had the open wheel stuff and the 917s. What, what was your ideal car to drive? I know, what was the most fun and I guess what was the hairiest? Well, I, I think probably one of the most unusual things to happen, I think, was, um, as I said, um, Lewis Stanley, the, the boss running the BRM team, um, and it was owned by, um, funded by Ruby Owen, who was, uh, they were manufacturers of truck components, axles and things like this, and Mrs. Stanley was the daughter of the owner of that company. Um, and uh, so Lewis Stanley... Um, when he married Jean Stanley, uh, he got himself in charge of running the running the race team, the Formula One team, and he would have a tendency of um, calling drivers at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. Um, not quite sure why, but anyway, if you got a call from Lou, it was going to be late. And I had this phone call, and uh, I'd done the, you know, the couple of oh, no, I hadn't actually driven the Formula One car at that time, but I was still in former Atlantic, and he called me and he said, uh, we've decided to send you the, to the Nürburgring in the Can-Am car. Wow. They had a Can-Am car as well. <laughs> and uh, so my introduction to the, my first race outside England was on the famous Nürburgring circuit in a eight-litre monster of a Oh, my car. gosh. You didn't, so you didn't from, start slow, did you? <laughs> so, so I jumped from uh, 175 horsepower single-seater uh, on races around England and into a Can-Am car around the Nürburgring. What was the – I mean, on that straightaway, <laughs> what – are you, you're going over 200, right? Yeah, in sure. In that car. I mean, that is – you just have to be insanely fast and doing Can-Am on the Nürburgring. Mm. How intimidating was that track? Um. Well, I put a lot of a lot of miles on a rental car, sort of making sure I knew which were, a lot of corners yeah, looked very similar. So you had to absolutely. That's, I mean, it's such a long track. How, do you know how many? Uh, yeah, it was about fourteen, fourteen k's. 14. So how do you? I, I, I mean, I know drivers tend to try to memorize. Okay, this is the spot where I want to turn for this curve, and that you know I want to break here. Yeah, there here wasn't and all racing kind of... simulators back then. No, no, right. That's right. How do no. you memorize? 14 kilometers of turns, uh, places to break, hills, you know, how how do you get enough of that information stuck in your head so when it comes to race day, you're not going, uh, am I going left or right here? I can't remember. You know? No, you've got you've to have a pretty good memory, that's for sure. And, um, yeah, the simulator of the day was a rental car just to sort of do, um, and it took a long time. I was just going to say, know. how many laps yeah, do you so, go around there before so, you feel you know, like you know it? Well, I suppose I did maybe 20 laps, but um, I wouldn't... What happens in a race, you find every lap's quicker than the last one, you know, because you're still... Right. Um, still perfecting that yeah, time around the track. Um, yeah, sure. when you've done a lot of miles and you know your car very well. I mean, you know, especially if you're in a, something like a Can-Am car um, and there were, you know, a couple of uh, 917s, um, the open 917. Um, mm-hmm. There were some other, you know, a lot of other very, very quick machinery. And... Um, at the end of that race, so what I was astonished, or not just that race, but they bought all these wrecks in, you know, that had gone through the hedge of, on the straight yeah. and broken in two. And, the, yeah. you know, you'd walk around the paddock and see these these wrecks. And um, we must have been slightly mad because it doesn't really seem to affect racing drives. You still don't well, think don't, it's Don't you to have you. to find a way to mentally block that out? Like, that's you not going to happen to me because if you really, think yeah. it might happen yeah. to you. It's it, like, it could. Sure, yeah. It's like um, parts r- breaking on a racing car. You know, you sometimes you're going through, well, like, say, the Curva Grande at, um, at Monza in a Formula mm-hmm. 5000 car. And, you know, going through there was obviously flat. But um, now and then it would go through your mind. I wouldn't like anything to break going through here. Sure. And I, I had a rear wing come off of the, off the Lola and, and bounce between the, you know... Armco barrier into the Armco on one side and then veered across and hit the other side and veered back again and ended up um, with the bodywork off the front and the back. Oh, but my gosh. Four, wheel, four wheels still on the car and the car still going. And it was only a lap from the end, so I finished the race like Can't that. let off that throttle. <laughs> no, no. You know, as long as you finished. <laughs> yeah, Those exactly. were the days of uh, how's the car? Okay, the car's good. How's the driver? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's great. Now, how did you get – you got really kind of in the 80s 
stuck with the Le Mans and uh, the endurance stuff and you raced with Porsche. Yeah, well, what happened then was um, I never really regarded myself as a sports car driver. We did we drove sports cars. It was good fun. Um, you were with another, in, in a good team, you were with another driver of uh, generally similar. You had to be able to do pretty close lap times to each other, otherwise you wouldn't be... Um, you wouldn't be remaining with the yeah, team. You're not supposed to compete with each other. Well, we did. You know, we'd always we wouldn't want to be slower than the other <laughs> right. than your well, co-driver. Course, yeah, you, know, you so, can't help but do that. So that was the competition bit. But um, I was lucky enough to be paired with Mike Halewood, who yeah. was, you know, just a, a genius on a motorcycle and uh, and and also in a car. So and good fun, you know. And he was mm-hmm. a real playboy at the time. I mean, you know, he'd be out on the on the uh, old red wine of the night before the race and would be up at six or seven in the morning oh. and Mike would be as red as a beetroot when he got out of the car. But um, he was just a really good guy to drive with because he gave you sort of equal practice time, which not all drivers do, Yeah, uh, if you, especially if maybe you're the number two driver or something. So Mike always, was always very fair and, um, and he would often come out on the wall and hold the board out and things like this and with a big grin on his face if you were... You know, leading another another one. I think the that camaraderie cars. is really important. Yeah, so that, the sports car racing was um, a lot of us guys wanted to do it before because we got paid to do t- tire testing and and long distance testing to make sure the car was going to run. You know, twenty four yeah. hours or a twelve hour race and this kind of thing. So we got miles. We got we got better pay than in the single seaters, mm-hmm. um, and good fun with the you know good camaraderie with your generally with your co-driver and um so then you go back to single seater racing um 5000 cars I really love those um but what happened in um in 1981 um I drove the Mirages for 7 years and then stopped they they pulled out Harley Cluxton was the last owner of those cars and uh uh, stopped in 1979, so I didn't go to, to Le Mans in, eight, in 1980. In 1981, I was driving at Indy. Um, I had my own McLaren, an M24 McLaren, and I finished third in the race behind uh, Ansel Andretti. And uh, when I got back to, uh, back to, we lived in Scottsdale, and Jennifer and I drove back to Scottsdale, and uh, there were all these messages from Manfred Yankee at Porsche saying that, in a police call, which I did, and they, they uh, what had happened was Rick Mears was going to drive at uh, Le Mans that year, and during the uh, the 500, he had a they had a pit stop stop fire, and Rick uh, was had some burns uh, to mm-hmm. the face and so on, so he couldn't go, and uh, so Porsche were trying to you know get hold of me and uh, invited me to you know go over, and so I had my first race for Porsche in a 936 Porsche, and um, that kind of started my, I suppose, long association with Porsche, and particularly with Le Mans, and uh, did a number of races in the World Sports Car Championship. And the, that that series was very, very big in Japan. And um, uh, Professor Bok came to me one day and said, you know, we've, we have a team in Japan that wants to buy a 956. They want a works driver. And uh, wondered if I'd like to, you know, mm-hmm. go and do that. So... Um, I, that appealed to me. I'd done some races in Japan, so I went out and drove in this uh, six-race uh, Japanese series and um, won five of the six races. So I sort of, uh, you know, drive then at Le Mans for Porsche and I was doing this sports car series each year in Japan for during right through the 80s. And <laughs> you were driving with Curly Haywood and Derek Bell. and I mean, you were, this was probably the most iconic time for Porsche in sports car racing. Yeah, I mean, Porsche were, they were not great payers, but the drivers, we all complained about the money, but uh, the thing is that, you know, they gave you the best chance of winning, and uh, that's what it was all about at the end of the day. So, um, uh, and, yeah, I really enjoyed sort of uh, the different, sharing the car with different uh, guys who, you know, they're all good drivers, Jack Lafitte and Jerry A and Alan Jones and I drove together. Um, Brian Redman, Early Haywood, Al Holbert, you know, there's a whole host of guys there that were uh, just great, great, you, guys, you, uh, great guys to team with. You ran Le Mans in, what was it, 83 with the uh, Yeah, that's the, right. The Rothman. With, with the Rothman. I drove the first year of the Rothmans 
956 is um, was 1982 and we had the one two three finish that year and I was Jochen Mass and I uh, finished second we shared the car um, that year um, and I also shared the car with Jochen in the uh, first race in 1981 in the 936 Porsche so um, and then of course we in the uh, the 83 race I I had my win with uh, Hurley and uh, and Al. What what is that like winning Le Mans? I mean that that's you know one of the most revered races in the world. I mean you know and and are you just so exhausted that you you can't stand up anymore or are you, <laughs> you know I mean it's 24 hours it's yeah. endurance racing it's oh, you, you know, what's it like at the end? Well you're hyped up on the old adrenaline adrenaline you can you can at two o'clock in the morning be thinking oh god you know it's going to be my turn to drive again in a minute and I'd uh, but as soon as you got in the car, you know it's uh, you're racing and you, the tiredness goes away. And I was always uh, curious: is it possible for you to actually get some sleep when it's when you're not behind the wheel? Well, <laughs> I, I guess everybody's different. I've seen drivers just fall into the caravan, go to sleep. Oh, okay. Um, or motorhome later on. Um, in my case, I've always been suffered a bit from insomnia. Uh, I, I don't sleep very well sure. at all, and uh, certainly at Le Mans. You've got a French uh, commentator droning away all night, and the car's right. going round and round. And it's—I never ever—I was never—I'd lay down, but uh, never slept. Well, at least you'll take the night shift then. If you're <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. The first year I went was in the Mirage um, with Mike Howard and John Watson, and uh, I was kind of there to to do the night shift to give both of those guys a longer rest. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, in my th- I, in going into the third hour. I'd done two hours in the car and refueled to go out again, and I spun. Somebody had gone off the road, come in onto the Molson Strait and cover the road in, they used to have these very fine uh, gravel, you know, banks in those days. Uh-huh. And so I covered the track in, uh, you know, essentially marbles. And right. as I came onto the straight, I spun and hit the Armco going backwards at an angle and flipped the car over. Oh, my gosh. So... um I wasn't very popular. We were running third, <laughs> oh. and my biggest yeah. fear—I'm upside down in the car in the dark, and you know, thing. I was just thinking, what the hell am I going to tell John? Why, <laughs> you know? And You're not thinking I, is this I car on back, fire, or yeah, can I get well, out? You're just I worried about what they're going to do. Well, I mean, at the time, you know, it was—I uh, was—it's uh, a pretty nasty feeling being upside down in the dark like that. And you sort of certainly praying that they turn the car back over before it uh, you know catches fire or whatever but uh, then uh, then it was uh, the dreaded John Wire they called him death ray he would look at you that way and he would say oh what a death ray say to you so I, I said when he asked me what happened I said I've turned the car over and he said you haven't I said I have <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was my first and last Le Mans at that time <laughs> so how is your life outside of racing because you also have a a prominent car collection is a, another reason why you're here so when you're racing because you hear this from both ends where they race cars and they love cars and outside of it or because I'm a race car driver I can drive an SUV I don't you know I don't have that need to have a sports car were you always a car guy yeah, look, I was um, certainly in the early part of my career. I, um, as soon as I got the Formula One drive with BRM, I ordered a Dino Ferrari. I'd never had a, I'd never owned a sports car, <laughs> so I thought, yeah, I'm gonna. And I went to Italy to pick it up, and um, they showed me around the race trop, shop, and uh, and then said, this I think it was a uh, Doctor Butzi. Um, he said, um, would you like to meet Mister Ferrari? And I said, oh, wow. yeah, absolutely, you know. <laughs> So he took me into Enzo's office, and Enzo was sitting there at a round table and a couple of his other people uh, there, and uh, he chatted away to me through an interpreter. And because uh, uh, the, the comment I remember more than any, he said, Mr. Shulman, maybe one day you, you will drive for us. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, it's quite, um, uh, I suppose, topical that um, the car I now own, the Ferrari 275 GDB4, which is the ex Steve McQueen car, and uh, um, following the restoration of that car by Ferrari, um, Classic and Sports Car had arranged to do a arranged with me to do a, an article on it, and they wanted to drive it. And I wasn't that keen on the idea of them rushing around in my sure. fully restored, you know, GDV4. Anyway, um, cut a long story short, I went to Ferrari. They said, "Look, 
we've got a really good guy, James Elliott. He's proper, you know, respectful guy in terms of the cars and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. And uh, you can go with him. So we went there, and I was. Um, there, we were told there was no chance of driving the car at Fiorano. So I was imagining it's going around through traffic and you know trucks and all this kind of thing. Sure. But, but the night before, um, when I went there, we all met together for dinner, and uh, the marketing lady uh, said to me, "Look, um, Joanne Marshall was her name. She said, um, got some good news. We can uh, run on Fiorano tomorrow." So I finally got to drive a Fiat Ferrari at the Fiorano circuit. <laughs> oh, that is very cool. Yeah, and you know, and what a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The, this yeah. car that if anyone hasn't seen it, it's definitely making its rounds right now. It's a it was a 60 1967 275 GTB4. And what I mean that car by itself <laughs> is an iconic valuable rare Ferrari, but yours is previously owned by Steve McQueen. Which, you know, makes it the Ferrari to have. Uh, how did you? How did you? How long have you had it? How have you? Had you come about it? Well, I've had it for uh, four years. Um, it was offered to me um, by a friend of mine, um, and at the time, I was um, I was not not able to sort of, you know, buy that car um, just off off the cuff like that. It was quite a lot of money and. Uh, um, I called another friend of mine who has got a, quite a large car collection in Australia, Peter Harburg, and Peter does some historic racing and races yachts and all this kind of thing. He's a great friend of Jack Brabham's or the late Jack Brabham. And um, so I said to Peter, you know, um, you should buy this car and, uh, you know, it's got this great history. And he said, well, you know, I don't know, that's the Steve McQueen thing uh, means very much. you know." Uh, <laughs> Little um, did he know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I said, well, I, I think so. I, I said, you know, but it's a great car anyway, and it's uh, uh, and Peter loved con- you know he loved convertibles, and uh, um, so he loved the car. And so, what happened was we kind of bought it together. But my idea was that it should be restored by Ferrari back to the original. Sure. And Peter's idea was, um, well, he was kind of I persuaded him that uh, we should send it to Ferrari, and they were very uh, very interested in that project, and particularly because of the history of the car. And um, so uh, he said, "All right, well, okay, let's let's do it." So you know, paid the deposit and booked it in. They Ferrari normally say, "You better allow a couple of years," and I think that that's just for any restoration that that goes through there. They won't sort of commit to having it finished within twelve months or anything like that. Yeah, you never know what you're going to find. Yeah, what so, you feel the pain off. So of you know, they said, uh, "You know, we'll we'll do that, but you know, allow two years. It might be sooner." And um, so anyway, Peter then sort of thought he'd, uh, he didn't really want to do that and he'd sort of, you know, liked the car as it was and he offered the car to me, um, you know, at a reasonably healthy profit. And so that... Well, I, that's sure nice yeah, of him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, fair enough. Um, yeah. Um, I, I, I'd sort of got really keen on this idea of it going back to original and especially Ferrari was so keen, and uh, so. Um, and this car, I, this car, when you got it, you said it, it was a convertible. But yeah, now, I mean, we just saw how gorgeous that car is. It, it looks, is definitely yeah. not a convertible. No, it but I mean, co- it was an absolutely beautiful convertible. I mean, that car was um, a concourse car. So, and so pe- what happened to the car prior to you getting it that made it a convertible who cut it up or why did they cut it up well um the nart spider had come out steve mcqueen bought as you know a nart spider mm-hmm. which was um rear-ended by a truck or pickup um he bought it he had it customized by lee brown and repainted and drove it out and had it hit two days later you know mm-hmm. it's very badly damaged and um he bought another 275 gdb4 um I was told by um, Chris Vandergriff that he'd actually ordered that car, the, the Berlinetta. Um, the Nart Spider was flown over from Italy. Um, Lee Brown, who used to paint Steve's cars, he pa- painted his Cooper Mini. And so Steve called him up and said, you know, pick the car up, and uh, this is the Nart Spider I'm talking about. I mm-hmm. want to paint this. 
describe the blue he wanted and so on and so forth. And he's very particular about colours. And when you talk to Junior Conway and uh, um, Lee Brown, you know, they often painted a car two or three times until they got the colour just right. Yeah. But um, when he, when the night was crashed, the GB4 arrived um, while the while the night was uh, before they'd even started any repairs to it, and it was sitting in Lee Brown's shop. And um, so, essentially, the car the car arrived. It was a gold colour, which uh, Steve didn't like. Lee Brown repainted it this sort of red he calls Chianti red, a dark red, and um, uh, Steve had that car for um, around four years from what we've been able to ascertain with the research and talking to uh, mm-hmm. the second owner, owner's wife, which is the second owner was Guy Williams, who was the famous uh, Zorro actor and uh, Lost in Space. And... Um, uh, Boy, why aren't they advertising this as the Guy Williams Ferrari? Then <laughs> well, he's the most recent celebrity to have it. We should be well, called yeah, the Guy Williams yeah, two seventy five. Uh, it's it's Zorro's Ferrari. I mean, sure. yeah. You know, this is the funny thing too. And uh, when uh, when Ferrari knew that, they said, "Oh, Zorro was very, very big in Italy." You know, he was really yeah, the guy. bigger than McQueen in Italy. <laughs> no, well, I doubt that. But anyway, um, it's, uh, it did have this um, incredible Hollywood history with the two actors owning it. And then Guy Williams sold the car, and um, it was sold in 1976 to um, J.P. Hyen, um, a Californian. He was, I understand, he was an LA, LA policeman. And uh, J.P. Hyen had the, the car was damaged shortly after he got it, and, and he took it to Junior Conway to um, repair it and strip it. He wanted a bare metal respray, but it sat in Junior's shop for over four years, and eventually um, it was sold that way, unfinished to Robert Pinella, a trucking uh, guy from uh, Stockton, got, you know, hauling fruit and stuff around California. And um, uh, Bob Pinella also had, had had other Ferraris. I think he had another 275 or 250 short wheelbase or something at the time. Um, but he'd always, he wanted a Nart Spider, which you couldn't buy any. There were 10 of them made that all been sold. Mm. So... Um, a company in California, a coach building company, Strahman, acquired the original Scaglietti Bucks from the Nart Spiders, and uh, he proceeded to build 10 more or do 10 more conversions for customers that had existing 275 GDB4s. And so uh, Bob Pinella sent the car to Strahman in 90, straight after he bought it, it went to Strahman and had this uh, the Nart conversion done to it. But that's kind of how that uh, that came about, and it remained that way until I bought the car. And it has to be when you've sent a car to Ferrari, uh, and I guess this is a good problem to have waiting for your Ferrari to be restored. It's got to be the longest two years if you just, you know, like a kid on Christmas Eve going, when's it going to be ready? When's it going to be ready? Well, no, actually, you know, the funny thing was about Ferrari and um Anyone who's had car, more than one car restored has uh, got plenty of horror stories to tell and certainly uh, some surprises when you get the bills oh, yeah. because, they, as you said earlier, they always find other things that need doing and uh, it always takes, in general, gen, generally takes twice as long as you might allow. Yeah, but, no restorer ever calls up and goes, hey, good news, it's well, going to actually be cheaper and further ahead of schedule. Well, <laughs> I, and I'll tell you what, that was the case with Ferrari. Really? They, they didn't call up, but... I would go to see the car, and it was always ahead of where I expected it to be. And um, so they underpromised and overdelivered. Yeah, they did. Wow, they did. They basically um, they had that job done um, within a year. Uh, but what during that before the car was finished, um, we decided. When I say we, um, the head of uh, the Ferrari Classica uh, section, Marco Arrighi, he said, "You know, this car is." Uh, and certainly body-wise and all new trim and everything was uh, brand new. Mm-hmm. But what we wanted to do was to, what I wanted was to put it back to as close a condition it was when Steve McQueen took delivery of it. Yeah. And even Ferrari, we talked about whether it should go into the original gold color called Notchola or whether it should be done in the dark red that um, you know uh, McQueen had chosen. And um, it was agreed by everybody that it should go into McQueen's color. And that's quite unusual when Ferrari are putting a car back to original to to do the classic certificate. 
normally they are back in original means as it came out of the factory. So, um, and they, it also has a wheel upgrade too, right? They went from the Campagnolos to, to well, the no, that, well, what happened with that was um, the Ferrari, the GDB4 was the first car to um, uh, to go under the Campagnolo wheels, mm-hmm. as, as I understand, and they put them onto that car because they were worried that the wires were not strong enough. And gotcha. you know, with the extra horsepower and so on, so they were Barani wire wheels, which were on the Nart Spiders, but the Nart Spider wasn't sort of a, um, really recognised by Ferrari as being a true Ferrari. That's why right. they, uh, Enzo wouldn't let them call it a Ferrari. It was called a Nart Spider. That was it. That was uh, Canetti's um, deal with the North American racing team. So um, what happened with with that car when Steve bought it? Um, and it was re-sprayed by Lee Brown, um, he ordered Lee to take the uh, Barani wires off of the Nart Spider and put onto the GDB4, and that actually, um, many owners did that. They bought those wire wheels for them, but the, all the cars were delivered on the solid mags. Interesting. Yeah. So how how long ago the restoration, you know, how long ago was it completed, and how have you enjoyed the car since then? Well, what uh, it, what, so what we did was... Um, we decided to do everything else to the car in terms of, um, you know, all the brakes were taken off and dismantled and new shocks and all new lines and, you know, um, calipers and everything. Were, mm-hmm. We essentially brought the car up to virtually as it would have left the factory. And um, so that was another year doing that. Um, and... I, I was nervous thinking, oh, you know, I'm tired of waiting because it was just such an interesting project. And as I say, um, I'd go down to Ferrari every few months and uh, I was always amazed at the progress, you know. You had to be chomping at the bit to be able to get behind the wheel and actually experience the You know, the it, was, it was more fun doing the um, having the car done and also doing the research on the car. Yeah. Because I spent two years... Um, Meeting people that had been involved with uh, mm-hmm. with McQueen back in the day and knew him, and uh, Chris Vandergriff, for example, uh, his father um, Chip Vandergriff, sold you know supplied mm-hmm. three Ferraris to McQueen, the the uh, Lusso and the Nart Spider and uh, the GDB4, and sort of talking to those people and their experiences um, with him back in the day, and not just talking about that car, but you know. Um, Steve used to go and hang out with uh, Chip Vandergriff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they were good pals and shoot the breeze about cars and racing and this kind of thing. And uh, Chris uh, remembers those stories. He was, you know, he was working for his dad there at the time. And uh, Junior Conway comes up with amazing stories. He's the one who said, you know, Steve used to break the spokes on the Barani wheels, so they finish up putting the, he said, Ferrari mags back on the car and. Lee Brown's got some great stories as well. So meeting these people and also um, Guy Williams' widow, uh, Janice Williams, and uh, Guy Williams' son, and, you know, their memories of the car and um, when they had the car. So that's been a... And gathering the material and so on and so forth, that's been a really fantastic uh, experience. And now the car is is definitely in the spotlight. It's coming up for sale through RM Auctions, and it's definitely the... You know the 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 car at Pebble Beach. This is the one everybody's talking about. Everybody is excited about, and it, it's nobody knows what's going to happen with it. Um, what made you decide yeah. that this is the time to to move on? I, I hadn't planned that. I, I really uh, many people ask me. Um, you know, a couple of Australian um, journos did a story for. The, you know, the magazines down there. And um, I just, you know, I said, it's not for sale. I mean, it, but they would try to pry out of me what they, I thought the car was worth. And I said, well, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant because I don't plan to sell a car. Um, but, you know, as time went on and um, values continue to climb and uh, we have a very, um, it's a very costly exercise to import a car into Australia. But there's mm-hmm. a 40% import uh, tax on on uh, cars and uh, as the value went up and it's not based on what you paid for a car it's actually what the car is you know considered to be worth so it became to it got to a point where um, it just would have been impossible to to take that car back and do it you know where 
just add another forty or fifty percent onto it, and this kind of thing as as the yeah, as the values were going up for GTB fours. I mm. would tell the Australian government it's a Zorro car when you're importing, <laughs> and I'd leave off the Steve yeah. McQueen part yeah, yeah. when oh, you're having the forty yeah. percent. It's just a million dollar two Oh, you know, I tried everything, but <laughs> didn't it didn't work? And, well, uh, now now that it is for sale, we we do have to pry because what do you think it's going to go for? Because there has been guesses. All over the place. Honestly, your guess is as good as mine. It's come and come and see on the night. <laughs> it's just well, it's be... definitely going to be an exciting auction to watch, and we're going to be there. We want to uh, be part of the excitement. I, 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 I know from being at the auctions in Monterey when a car like that goes across, that's just this level way above the rest of the cars available in the auction. The energy in the room comes up. People come from outside of the tent. You know, if they hear that car's coming, they come rushing in, and and it's just it's a really exciting experience. And I hope you, I hope you get to enjoy that experience and uh, and and that excitement because I, I think it's going to be pretty special. Yeah, true. I was uh, I've been to a few of the Monterey auctions, and I was there with the um, uh, Nut Spider, and um, and even after that auction, the next day at Pebble Beach, um, the auctioneer Max Max Gerardo, who I've you know kind of know. I've known for a while, and and he just said, uh, "When are you going to give us the, uh, you know, <laughs> the McQueen car?" And I said, "When it ain't going, it's not going anywhere." I said, and at that time it was in the Ferrari Museum. They want, they asked if they could display it for three months. They and it finished up staying there for ten. Yeah. And um, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't know where to where to put the car because sure. not not being able to take it back to Australia um, meant that I had to. Uh, and and you know that with the with the sort of value creeping up, um, insurance was a, an issue. Yeah. And then I started thinking, a friend of mine, uh, uh, architect friend in Portugal, designed uh, this beautiful home for someone, and he bought two hundred fifty thousand pounds worth of uh, hand custom made uh, furniture in Italy, and the truck left Italy and never turned up anywhere else. It's never been found. That's a scary so thought. All, all these things were going through my mind with sure, my Ferrari. Sure. You know. I thought I can't drive it around and just park it on the street somewhere, you know. Well, I guess we should also say then for anyone who wants to see this car in person and, uh, you know, if you can't make it out to Pebble, at the Peterson Automotive Museum starting right now, the car is on display with some other uh, Steve McQueen cars, our Jaguar XKSS that he drove, uh, his Indian motorcycle. So we have a, a very neat little McQueen pop-up exhibit where the car just looks absolutely brilliant next to uh you know next to the Jag. Yeah, there's there uh it's a trio of uh beautiful uh machinery and you know they'll be on display here uh up until Pebble Beach, so um if you get a chance come by the museum and take a look at them. Yeah, uh, um you know it, it was a pleasure talking to you. I I can't wait. We'll see each other up at Pebble and um you know, after the auction, it, the drinks are on you. Well, you know, once it sells, <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I would say I'd be able to afford a drink or two from my friends. <laughs> well, we, well, we got to have you back uh, after it sells and find out what your next project's going to be. So, uh, Vern, thank you so much for coming in, and uh, everybody else, thank you so much for listening. Thank sure. you. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure.